0: Welcome to Front Row from 2LO Rebooted where we share the stories of the people who make up design and engineering. I'm Bill Thompson and in this edition we've got cake and possibly a cup of tea and a biscuit. as R&D researcher Jasmine Cox tells us about the cook-along kitchen experience and Jake Berger from Archive Development describes how a nice cuppa and a selection from the BBC Archive can improve the lives of people with dementia and their carers. First, to cooking. Object-based cooking from research and development, where they've been experimenting with new ways to tell stories, pulling assets into a program as they are needed, and therefore allowing the user to shape the narrative as it goes along. Over an IP-based connection to R&D North Labs, it's the future, you know, I talked to Jasmine Cox about Cake, the cook-along kitchen experience. And I began by asking her to explain what object-based really
1: means object based is is kind of a term we've started using but we've realized that it's not terribly explicit in what it means and and actually what it it means is that we don't build programs in a in a kind of set linear fashion because that doesn't necessarily mean it's economical to make them make a new version of a program So with object-based, rather than taking all the elements and assets that you would create any program with and kind of baking them down into a linear program, with object-based, essentially we make small parts of that program and then they can be dynamically rendered as and when perhaps your television or your radio or any device that you're kind of consuming this content on, that can be dynamically scheduled to you. So you can actually make programs that are flexible for the people who are watching them.
0: And, and it's that dynamic bit, I suppose, is, is the exciting thing. So so obviously I'm interviewing you now, I'm recording it, uh, I'll sit down, I'll edit it down, people will listen to this, it will be played out from the start to the end, in the order that I, as, as the producer, decide, and somebody who's listening it could choose to play it faster or slower, or stop it or restart it, but they can't really do that much else with it. You're, you're implying that the elements of a programme, radio, television, whatever, are all still held separately up to the point where they are presented to the audience?
1: That could be one option. So you can essentially have all the elements of a programme, including separating out things like the different speakers, say, in a radio programme like, like us, so we could separate out our speech, and you could just have you talking. Uh, we could separate out all the other audio elements, and if this was a, a web experience, we could separate out the text and have that ch- almost kind of chapterized, but very, very small chapters, that are then delivered to your device based on what you want it want to get out of it, so your preferences, your personal preferences. So
0: I could have a, a version of Any Questions which didn't have anyone from a particular political party in it?
1: Absolutely, yes. If you wanted to enter a filter bubble where you didn't want to hear from, uh, from a particular political party, absolutely, yes. OK, yeah.
0: I can see why that would appeal to some people. OK. <laughs> Right, you so say that's one option, so, so there are different things you can do within that, that framework of object-based broadcasting?
1: Yeah, so um, a, a typical typical example is the way we make a couple of programmes at the moment, so QI and QIXL. We record one recording session and then we edit two different linear versions of that programme and then they're delivered as whole programmes to, um, well, they're broadcast on television and, and then they're on iPlayer. But if you just had all the raw a- assets, your producer could describe the way in which they could interact with each other, the kind of relationships of each bit of the programme, uh, you could then you know, have any number of different variation of length of that programme. So if you were getting on a, a bus and you only had maybe 15 minutes to watch a whole QI episode, you could get a 15-minute QI episode delivered just for you. But you'd still that, get all the salient points of that programme. That
0: sounds like a really great way of, of allowing people to be more creative with the materials that we're recording so you've actually done this with cake haven't you you've made a a program a cooking program that can be tailored in this sort of way
1: yes so with cake uh, first off it's it's a very compelling kind of a thing to get people's heads around because everybody cooks and um, we want to be able to teach people new recipes in ways that are more convenient and more more approachable for them so that it's kind of personalized in a way that they it fits around their context so we've actually created a cook-along shows a show where you learn a new recipe with a presenter who teaches you the steps in that recipe but all the parts of that recipe are kind of configured around a set of preferences that you set up at the beginning so that's how many people you're going to be cooking for what kind of dishes you want to cook so you can create a whole recipe plan Um, And a bit of context about your kitchen, so that's the kind of things you have available to you, including things like the number of hobs, perhaps. And then the programme actually creates a, a kind of a schedule of cooking for you, so that means that you then have, perhaps if you've chosen a couple of dishes, like a fish dish with a couple of side dishes, you don't kind of cook one and then another that we kind of interleave these recipes so that you you have a kind of dinner ready for you all at the same time so it kind of helps with your scheduling. And the programme is broken up into chunks which mean that you effectively have steps that stop after every step and the programme waits for you to say that you're ready to move on so the programme goes entirely at your pace without kind of letting you burn things in the oven uh, it still kind of keeps a, a kind of track of what's happening in your live environment.
0: So there is a sense where, as you say, it's not going to let you burn stuff, but it is also going to be adaptive to you. And um, is it incredibly difficult and complicated and expensive to make this sort of stuff? Surely you have to shoot everything loads of different times because it's all it, it's all got to fit together. How does that work?
1: Well, actually, we don't have um, figures for exactly how much more expensive it might be or less expensive. We're not currently sophisticated enough to say it's very comparable to a, another production. Um, which is why we're going to be doing more work. There isn't so much duplication, so we we were quite canny in that we made sure that the language that our presenter was using didn't kind of mention the the amount of ingredients, so that we can scale the ingredients for any number of people. So uh, the way we kind of make transitions and the continuity of those transitions is we have to be quite careful about. But actually, we didn't have to duplicate um, very many shots at all, so we didn't double up the time for actually filming. And, and all the all the responsiveness comes from the browser and, and kind of, I suppose, making a show that is more like a, a web app. That's probably where the more complexity comes in and planning that story, the kind of pre-production, making sure that you know how the, the final objects are going to kind of respond to each other before you go and film them uh, means that you can be really efficient on set.
0: Right. But we all try to be efficient on set or in the studio anyway. So all you're saying here is that as long as you do that sort of planning as a sort of more sophisticated storyboard, then you can deliver uh, an object based proposition you know, reasonably efficiently. I, I thought what you said there about it's, it's responsiveness, because you've mentioned before that you said that it's a bit like the audiovisual equivalent of responsive design for a web app or for a, for a website. Could you explain a little more about what you mean by that?
1: yes i suppose we are trying to understand how you make programs a bit like the responsive web where you can respond to um, perhaps the, the the kind of screen size of a device or the the capabilities of a device with programming you are kind of combining those responsive elements so if you're lis- um watching listening on a, a device that has a different screen you can use object-based to configure elements on a page so you might be able to make things like subtitles or headers move them around make them bigger smaller depending on the device you're using compared you know if you're comparing a small mobile phone with a tablet or a laptop or something like that or, or a connected television and you can make all these elements configure themselves based on your your environment and yes your, your device and obviously your preferences
0: and to some extent, sort of if I'm making a film or making radio, I do that. I do all of that sort of configuring, but then I, I fix it into a linear form at the time I sort of export it, at the time I render it. And so so what you're suggesting is because you don't need to do that final stage, you put more effort into into the planning, you get something which can meet audience needs more easily.
1: Yes, absolutely. And they, they can make, meet immediate audience needs. So when you publish, they can meet a wider spectrum of audience needs. But also, it means that your assets have all that extra metadata attached to them, so that they can be reused in other things. So rather than having a, a program that you might want to use a clip from, maybe in two years time from your archive, you've actually got that program broken down into clips that can be or, uh, very, very easily restructured into a new programme um, without an entire re-edit. They can just kind of be drag and drop.
0: And so as long as, we, as, long as the, the digital archive can, can hold them in the right way and we can find them, so there's always the problem about you know cataloguing, tagging and all that, we then have a, a much wider base of resources that can be used.
1: Yes, absolutely. And this is why our work with IP Studio is, is trying to kind of understand that new broadcasting system where IP networks deliver these things and the storage um, and I suppose tagging with metadata is, is automated and supporting production processes where we, we have an archive that is accessible in those ways.
0: Jasmine Cox there. And if you want to know more about Cake or any other RMD project, check out their public website, their internal pages on Gateway, their Confluence pages, their GitHub repos. Let's face it, they are everywhere. Or, head over to the nearest lab, where you'll find decent coffee and someone with fire in their eyes will be happy to tell you about their latest work. I promise you, it won't disappoint. Now to the Archive, which is being put to use in a range of different projects, as I found out from Jake Berger in Archive Development. I've known and worked with Jake for several years and I've watched this latest project grow under his supervision. It's a website that offers access to a curated collection of material from the Archive audio, video and stills, specifically intended to be used to stimulate reminiscences in people with dementia. The latest version of Remark has just been launched and I asked Jake to tell me more about it.
2: Remark is the BBC Reminiscence Archive which is a website which offers a selection of BBC archived material, so videos, audio clips, images, for the purposes of stimulating memories and reminiscences in people with dementia. The principle of reminiscence work, as it's known, is that whilst many people with dementia have very degraded short term memories and therefore find it difficult to converse in a, in a, in a normal manner, their Long-term memories, they're kind of deeply ingrained memories, often remain intact or more or less intact. And by using old material from the BBC's archives to stimulate their memory, triggers reminiscences, essentially conversations, about whatever that piece of content reminded them of.
0: And why are these reminiscences a good thing, helping somebody who may be suffering from severe dementia recall things from the past?
2: A lot of the benefit is around the relationships that the person with dementia has with the people around them, whether that's friends, family or or carers. So it's often the case, particularly in care homes or in dementia wards, that the person with dementia doesn't remember the person who's looking after them which can be distressing for the person looking after them if they're a family member and also can be distressing for the person with dementia. It often means that they'll have the same conversations every day. They'll uh, be uh, asking their carer's name you know, three or four times uh, you know, in the space of an hour and uh, that makes it hard for the carer to build a good relationship with the person because they don't have a sense of what the person under the dementia is, is like or was like. So by getting them to talk about things from their past gives the carer a more rounded view of the person. And when you have a more rounded view of a person and you understand their their personality, their history, their life story, you tend to build a better relationship with them. And if you have a better relationship with someone in a caring environment, they will tend to get a better level of care. So it's almost a tool for the carer As much as it is for the person with
0: dementia and this is something that's that's reasonably sort of clinically grounded
2: so the project project emerged uh three or four years ago from some conversations with uh, an academic and clinical researcher from the university of dundee dr norman arm and uh, he worked in the computing department of university of dundee and they had spent a number of years looking at how technology could support people with, with dementia and other similar health conditions. They and, and, and colleagues in, in that area did a substantial amount of research to, to show, firstly, that archived content did trigger reminiscence. And also there's other research which d- demonstrates that the process of reminiscing has an impact on the uh, on the well-being of the individual i think that there is, is further work that needs to be done to quantify that impact but uh, i think within the with, within the field of dementia care and research it's pretty broadly acknowledged that it is there is no cure for dementia there's no claims that reminiscence work is going to make a long term difference to a person's condition. However, there is, uh, I believe, evidence that the, for example, that people's uh, degrees of agitation, as it's known, are markedly reduced for a duration after having a reminiscence session.
0: So, so there's impact, and so the project is worth doing. Why are the BBC's archive particularly? One of the things which
2: I found most interesting when learning about reminiscence work from Dr. Arm was that generic material rather than personal material tends to elicit a better response and a better reminiscence. That uh, coupled with the fact that it's easier to, through generic material, to display say a thousand photographs and within that definitely find ten or twenty or a hundred things which are going to trigger a memory
1: a lot of other reminiscence
2: work focuses on uh, personal collections of archives, so family photographs uh, from the person with dementia's family, or things that should have an individual specific meaning to them. So that's great if you have the resource uh, to, to to produce such a personal memory pack. Uh, with 850,000 people diagnosed with dementia in, in the UK alone, and the the Funding crisis that seems to be hitting a lot of lot of the the care world at the moment. You can't assume that's going to be the case. So having a large amount of generic material is is what you need. And the BBC has been for the last ninety odd years capturing the everyday lives of everyday people through the decades in every part of the country, in every walk of life, and amongst the tens of millions of things within the BBC's archives, there's guaranteed to be a sufficient range of stuff that is going to trigger a reminiscence. And, <laughs> it, and it was from that those millions that we selected around 1,500 items uh, which we felt gave a broad kind of representative sweep of places, people, events and times.
0: How you actually presented
2: the material? You type in bbc.in slash remark or just google bbc remark and you will be presented with a very simple website. It's optimised for touchscreen devices but it will work on any browser. It's deliberately simple and plain. It's black, white and grey. The first choice you have to make is whether you want to explore via a theme or via a decade. The themes are things like events, people, animals, TV and radio, leisure. The decades range from the 1930s to the 2000s. So once you've made that choice, uh, you then select which of those themes or decades you want to explore. And then you simply choose whether you want to look at pictures, listen to audio or watch video clips. And then when you do that, when you select one of those, you are presented with a, a random selection. Uh, On screen, which will uh, start playing automatically. If that item that's playing or you're viewing doesn't trigger a reminiscence, then you can just swipe across to get to the next one or choose from a kind of carousel presented under the main image, which lets you uh, choose uh, something that that will trigger a reminiscence.
0: So it's designed. To be very simple to use, presumably for for elderly people who are less experienced with technology, for carers in a hurry, it just it just gets in, does the job, and gets out of the way. Yeah, yeah, precisely. That, that that's the intention, and also
2: it looks simple. And it needs to be simple, uh, not only because you can't assume any level of familiarity with with touch screens or with anything that looks like you know websites, but also because anything too distracting in terms of the user interface. Will distract the person from the uh, from, from the, the, the task ahead. Right,
0: and it's built just as a responsive
2: website. Where does it actually sit? Um, so all of the clips are held within Remark, which is hosted by BBC Connected Studios Taster platform. So they, they're all they're all there. They have also all been made available as described through Linked Open Data, and they're also, I've literally just today, have uploaded them all to the part of the BBC which lets you download assets. So uh, all of the images, all of the data can be downloaded uh, in bulk from And they're
0: licensed for this sort of clinical therapeutic use. Um,
2: Yes, so the data is completely openly licensed, so you can do whatever you want with it. The media is licensed for personal, educational and research use. So essentially, as long as you're not trying to sell it or charging for the service, then you can do what you want with it.
0: This is really quite an interesting sort of breakthrough in terms of what archive development has been working for for, for many years in making not just not just the the accurate descriptions of the, of the material as linked open data available, but actually the assets there under a reasonably permissive license. Uh, yes, I think it is. In my to my knowledge,
2: it's the first time that assets, BBC assets, have been essentially let loose uh, into the wider world with. The, with with a very permissive license, as you say. That was one of the reasons that this project took a little longer than I <laughs> hoped. But it was because at the beginning I set a very high bar for uh, for, for the, the, the level of availability for the assets and the data.
0: And what about the actual code base itself? I mean, presumably you could populate something like Remark with other people's material from... BBC partners, from British Library, from British Film Institute. Yes, indeed.
2: So um, we've also released the code base uh, as open source, which again I think is the first time the BBC has open sourced a a, a complete user-facing product. We've released bits of code in the past, but never a whole thing. Um, So yes, that is available, and precisely with the intention that perhaps a, a local dementia group could create a version of remark that only had media from bradford or from the north of england or that that simple uh, user interface design which lets you choose lets you navigate through a number of routes and then choose a media type could perhaps be used for non-dementia related things just a simple way of presenting stuff and also that people in other countries can repurpose it, could uh, change the language on it in order, that, or, as well as adding sort of culturally relevant content uh, to make it really um, have the greatest potential benefit for the greatest number of people
0: So it's relatively early days in terms of these, these releases, presumably you'll be looking to see what happens to it over the next few months and years?
2: So the, the, the version which is available now is kind of the second version, um, so the first version which is essentially a pilot was made available in May 2016 and after a couple of months i spent some time through the Alzheimer's Society working with groups of people with dementia uh, around England where I simply asked them to give it a try, have a go and give me any thoughts or suggestions as to how we might improve it. They gave me a huge amount of thoughts and suggestions as to how to improve it. That's not saying they, they didn't find it useful in its first version but the version which was, was released at the end of February 2017 uh, incorporates the vast majority of their suggestions and I think is a much better product because of it. And mm. I think if if nothing else, it demonstrates that the best way to improve a product is to sit down with its users and get them to tell you what they want. One, one of the things which we hadn't thought of, uh, which came up from literally every single participant in these tech- around 60 people, was that people wanted to know what was in the video or in the photograph. And we hadn't really thought about that. We would, it, it, An example might be someone looking at a, a photograph of, of the goons from the, the, the old radio, radio series and might be able to remember Spike Milligan and Harry Seacon but were getting frustrated because they couldn't remember the name of the third person. And so we added a simple, a little button, which when you press it, it just pops up with an overlay, just telling you what's what's in in, right. in the archive.
0: Well, congratulations on the project. The thing Thank is, you. I know that you have a background in psychology, so this must actually be a really meaningful project for you personally as well. Yeah, I mean, it, I, it, it's a meaningful project in
2: the sense, certainly in the sense that it, you know, generally doing something demonstrably and objectively good and worthwhile. Um, you know, much of what the BBC does is you know, is also good and worthwhile, but perhaps not always in such an obvious way with potential benefit to a huge amount of people. It kind of felt nice after twenty years in the BBC of not being a psychologist <laughs> that um, something of my of my training and background emerged in my in my job which was
0: Jake Berger there, and you can try Remark out on BBC Taster, or, if you're in the mood, download the source code and build one of your own. Well, that's all from this edition of Front Row on 2LO Rebooted. Do get in touch if you know of people or projects you'd like us to cover, and listen out for our next episode.